Hi, Zev. So happy to have you with us today. Hi, Gigi. How are you doing? I'm very good. Where are you in the world? At the moment, I'm in Jerusalem, Israel. Jerusalem is the headquarters of the company, right? Yep. We have another office in Haifa and in London, but the headquarters are in Jerusalem. Which is a pretty unique thing. I don't know that everybody that listens know that at the end of the day, most startups in Israel are in Tel Aviv and around Tel Aviv and not in Jerusalem. That's a unique thing in the company. That's true. The founders of the company were a group of PhD students in Hebrew U, and for many reasons, we decided to stay in the city. We use Hebrew U and Batsalel Academy of Arts as a hiring platform, like really kind of being able to pull top talent from there. So still there. Good. And how many people work in the company today? So at the moment, we have around 450 people at the company. And are they working now remote or from the office? So we are kind of coming back from the second lockdown here in Israel, and we are kind of starting to nudge people to have social interactions, kind of not necessarily come to office, but we're trying to arrange, you know, kind of fun activities outside. And at the moment, there is a still kind of complete flexibility around working like remotely or working at office. And do you think that you're going to change the way people work when COVID is over, when the vaccines are given? or everybody's going to come back to the office? It's a great question. I think kind of everyone is thinking is evolving around it. And I constantly try to talk with other uh, kind of fellow CEOs of growth stage startups to figure out where their thinking is. I think when this whole you know, COVID situation started, there was a little bit of euphoria around the possibilities of remote only work. We saw a lot of people talking about, you know, like ditching office space and things like that. And I think by now people realize that social interactions are important. So on one hand, everyone wants to like retain some of the flexibility that we're having at the moment. Uh, on the other hand, everyone also realizes that without social interactions, we're, I don't know, like becoming an army of mercenaries. It's like really changes the DNA of the companies. So I think what's going to happen is that I think we're going to work in the current setup, meaning kind of flexible work until this whole COVID situation is going to be resolved. I don't know, like say a year from now. And then a lot of companies will try to retain some of the flexibility, right? Like perhaps allowing most of the employees to work like two, three days from home, things like that. And that, if it's going to work on the long term or not, like frankly, no idea. I really hope that something will change it to the better in how things work. But uh, at the moment, I don't have a strong bet there. Yeah, I think what we're seeing in many companies is that, you know, you can break it down to the tasks that are more of the same. And these are done very well remotely, really no problem. But whenever you look at innovation, the needs to be creative, the needs to invent new things, then not being in the same room on the same blackboard is just slowing things down. You know, like it's an interesting distinction, but now when you kind of mention it and I try to think if it correlates to what I see internally, it's interesting. Like I agree. I mean, there are like this moments where you want like this brainstorming with other people you want like arguments you want to see other people and it sounds about right so lightrix is basically a company that i think not many people know the actual name of the company because you go under different names of products, right? Do you want to throw a few of the product names that people may know? Yeah, so I think our biggest brand at the moment is Facetune, which became almost a verb for a mobile retouching. That's our biggest brand. Another big brand that we have at the moment is Videoleap which is our creative video editor. Another kind of brand that we're pushing at the moment is Boosted, our SMB product. By now, we have a pretty 
big portfolio of uh, more than 10 products that we're basically kind of divide them even in the user-facing way into three kits. There's like a social kit, creative kit, and business kit. And I think that, you know, one of the things I love about the company is that it defies a lot of everyday startup wisdom in how it succeeds. And people may not know, but this company that is only like eight years old is already um, a unicorn or a multiple time unicorn, you know, raised a lot of money, has millions of customers. And I want to basically touch on how you got here in what is theoretically a very non-common strategy of offering standalone apps that are not themselves the social networks or the place where you share your content. And so basically, you know, we, if we want to call this like a pre-layer or a top-layer place where you actually go to Snap, Facebook, TikTok, and you basically succeeded in what many people thought is impossible in creating a very meaningful company out of such a top-layer or a pre-layer. And that is something that I really, really want to understand because most people think that in startup culture, that you have to really totally build something completely new, invent a new category, or disrupt something completely. But you basically build a super successful company that leverages innovation that are just the beginning of entry into a new platform. Are you basically focused on owning that pre-layer, the, the place that you go to before you go sharing? Well, you know, Gig, it's an excellent question. And there are so many different kind of ways to try to untangle it. So, you know, I'm going to start drawing different directions, like how things evolved and our thinking evolved. And please feel free kind of to stop me and switch gears to different directions. Because again, it's kind of a really big question about the strategy of the company and why we're doing things in a certain way. So let's start with the social networks. And I guess, you know, like the wisdom of owning a platform is obviously has a substantial basis around it, right? When we started the company, again, just remember our kind of DNA. We were a group of PhD students that did the research in computer graphics, image processing, and we really saw ourselves as tool makers. You know, like we really kind of tried to kind of explain ourselves in a poetic way. We're telling everyone, well, you know what, we're not artists, but uh, I don't know, think about Beethoven as a composer. Someone built this guy a piano to write a new symphony. We are want to be like these tool makers for a new generation of artists. And we obviously thought that creative tools are sometimes they create like this layered functionality that allows you to create a platform. But we really didn't think that it's possible to create a social network, like a consumer social network like from Mitro. Okay, like we already saw like Instagram was already a thing when we started the company. We saw it as an extremely saturated space where uh, you need a ton of capital in order to kind of explode and uh, try to establish a significant position. And we just didn't see it in our DNA. We actually thought that we will be able to create magical tools. We thought, as in terms of a role model, we thought about companies like Adobe, like Autodesk, who are tool makers. Like with time, we obviously started to see that uh, it's a problem of being of layer on top of the platforms and they try to figure out a place for ourselves. But I guess one of these uh, things that gives us a degree of comfort maybe a degree of false comfort, is that when you look at the history of tech, you're seeing that the relationship between different layers are kind of shifting over time, right? So like one example comes to mind is that when uh, Telegram started in, you know, like United States or after that, then uh, telephone companies became kind of huge monopoles. The people who owned the pipeline basically kind of owned everything. Like with time due to regulatory pressure, etc., the 
relationship between uh, people owning the pipeline and content providers kind of shifted. And I think we're kind of constantly seeing these shifts, right? Because again, like the infrastructure of pipes tends to be kind of so lucrative that it uh, gets people to focus on it. Exactly. Like, and especially the regulators. And we didn't see it with social networks for a long time, but I think it's kind of coming, right? Like you already can see the signs all over the place. And we actually thought that as a toolmaker, you in a sense can enjoy a degree of independence because you're not relying on any single pipe, right? You can create basically tools that are oblivious of the platforms where you're sharing like the output of the tools on. Okay, and that's kind of an interesting place to be. I'm not like obviously advocating it as a, you know, amazing or great or... I'm sure that many people, including I think me at some point, told you that without owning anything in the actual network, then you're standing at the risk of being marginalized. That was always like a big question for us, right? Because I think content creation tools, they are in the core of most of the social media platforms, right? Like you have filters on Instagram and you have video editing in TikTok. And most of these guys will give you some kind of tools, right? And on the other hand, if you're like really into professional production, you have Adobe. If you really want a professional crew, you're probably going to use a professional software for that. So it was always a question like for us, How big is the space in the middle? Between the pros and the tools that are inherent in the systems. And as you know, since you kind of (laughs) tracked the company for a while, we actually didn't have a good question to be answered, right? It was mostly, I guess, in the beginning, kind of wishful thinking, you know, let's uh, do the best we can and hope that the market grows somewhere. We didn't realize back then kind of the dynamics of the market, but kind of as the time went by, we started to realize the kind of things platforms are willing to do and the kind of things uh, Adobe and, you know, like company catering professionals willing to do. So if we're talking about the platforms, kind of one of the things, I guess the problems they have is that they need to build tools that really cater to their entire audience. Okay. I don't know, like think about built-in Apple software in iOS. When you're a product manager working there, you better create something than 95% of the population. Yeah. And if you're working for Adobe, well, you're really focused on, I don't know, 0.05% of the population in terms of the complexity of the user experience, etc. And I think what we started to do at Lightrix is to identify different of audiences of people who are willing to invest more time into tools but not to kind of jump ship to a professional software just yet. I guess you can claim that we kind of our bet was that there is going to be a layer of people who are interested in more sophisticated tools that are not professional just yet. We had identified like these users across like three different categories, like people who are like really into social media or power users of these networks and the Tools that the network themselves provide them aren't good enough for them. Another category of users are like really people with creative aspirations that, again, just need more. And yet another category of users are small businesses because like their needs are kind of different than the tools that, you know, platforms will provide. It's kind of a really underserved market. So, but... Again, in terms of your high-level thinking, you're right. Like, we really needed to carve a place for ourselves. It wasn't immediately evident how big this place is going to be. And in terms of our relationship with the platforms, I think it's kind of an interesting symbiotic relationship, right? Like you mentioned TikTok. And I think that's kind of a great example because before TikTok came out, less people were interested in video editing. Like we actually see it, right? Like since TikTok came out, VideoLeap, our uh, kind of flagship creative video editing product, like really started to 
attract way broader audience. And we already like developed a product that in terms of product thinking was like squarely targeting TikTok as a platform. That's the good news. Kind of the bad news is obviously TikTok also like it's very great at tool building, right? If you're looking at TikTok, kind of the video editing capabilities that they bundle with the platform are actually pretty decent, actually more than decent. We are in this position that on one hand, we benefit from this like new platform that attracts users to video editing. The other hand, we constantly need to innovate in order to clearly, you know, like carve our niche of being about the platform. I think that's really interesting. I think what I like most about the way you described it is that what I hear you saying is that when a new major platform emerges, then the platform will cater for the needs of the lowest common denominator of its users. But it's very likely that if you look at the needs of some niches of users on these platforms, especially if the platforms are huge and every niche can be billions of users, then you may find new needs that the platform is not going to serve for many, many years simply because they're focusing on the lowest common denominator. And that is an opportunity. It's exactly that, right? Like these platforms are so huge that even you are identifying a bunch of niches that are single percentage of the total users, you're still talking about kind of really big audiences if you know how to monetize them well. And so when you think today about competition, do you think more about the platforms, putting more and more people to build more capabilities internally? Or do you think about the likes of Adobe or other more professional tools wanting to try and take part of your market share of the prosumers? To tell the truth, like my concern was always like the size of the market in between, right? Because uh, like there was time when the platforms kind of tried to do like tool making as well. So Facebook at some point released a bunch of satellite apps to Instagram, like Boomerang and Lair, etc. And there was a time that Apple had their own kind of photo and video editing tools on the App Store. But if I need to kind of to look at the trends, like the platform kind of less interested in this thing because frankly, like you think about from the platform perspective, if they want to compete in this market, again, they need to pull some pretty good people there and they just like have higher priority tasks inside the company, right? Like also it's kind of hard to even see why Apple will do something like that because they also directly benefit from us being on their platform. So we're less concerned about that. We're also less concerned about Adobe because again, like they're really kind of squarely focused on professional tools. So from our perspective is just like the size of our market, like how fast it grows, how these audiences we're finding that are not content with existing platform tools, but do not want shift to Adobe product. So most of the time when we're thinking about competition, we're looking at other startups that are competing with us on like these different verticals of creativity. Like we don't have another company that kind of tries to tackle all that, but uh, there is no shortage of companies that are trying to compete with us on a product by product. Interesting. I love the way you put it because I think that there's some interesting insight here for everybody. And the insight is that when the large platforms think about what to enhance in their product, many times they would not focus on enhancing something that would not directly impact the usage. So I think another example with this would be why isn't the I don't to-do list application 
on Android and iOS, great. And the reason is probably because they can make it better. They can put more people on it. But at the end of the day, that's not going to be the main decision of a person to buy an iPhone versus an Android phone. And so these apps are kind of lowest common denominator. They're okay. They may improve them every once in a while, but there's still room for startup that are going to come and build better tools like this because it's not in the main focus channel of the platform. And I think that that's what you're saying, which is why the internal competition from the platforms is not the scariest thing. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it's obviously can be more nuanced than that, like especially with TikTok. Again, like I think we're doing a great job with video editing as well, like with tools inside their platform, kind of trying to bundle everything inside. But in general, yes, like from the perspective of Apple or Facebook or, you know, all the platforms, the needle mover activities for them are really different than the needle moving activities for us, right? Like imagine, I don't know, like at some point we got to a hundred million dollars in revenues and now we are want to get to a billion, right? And to us, it sounds like, you know, such an exciting and cool goal, etc. But like, let's be frank, right? For Apple, getting another billion from somewhere isn't going to exactly move the needle. For so, you know, in general, what I always admired about the way the company ran is that when I think about how many people told you competition, 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 competition from all directions, and you know, Apple's going to take you, Facebook's going to take you, TikTok's going to take you, Adobe's going to take you. And still you guys managed to navigate yourself to this great spot without freezing because of competitions. What's kind of your thinking philosophically about competition? How do you think about it? How do you take into account everything they're doing without letting it slow you down or scare you? Well, you know what, like it's evolved over time, right? Like in the very beginning, we saw like this great quote by Jack Welch, former CEO of General Electric, like the quote was, if you do not have a competitive advantage, do not compete, right? So that was like really clear for us from the very beginning. And when we started, we just looked at the market of let's call content creation on mobile. And it was like a really small one. I don't know, like Snapchat was the app of the year and like the revenues there, I don't know, maybe the whole market was maybe in single or double digit millions a year, right? It was really a small market back then. But what we realized, okay, the market is small, but it seems to be growing. And at least at the moment, we have a big competitive advantage because the company that we perceive it as a market leader, like Nick Software that Google bought them, like creators of Snapseed, they actually kind of engaged Hebrew U and specifically our lab to buy patents from us. They needed like two patents that we were working on. Kind of realized, oh, like these guys, those are clear market leaders here. There are kind of, you know, like certain things that we know how to do and they don't. That's like the top of the field. And we also realized that we know kind of a bunch of other things that when we look at our software, we thought, well, you know, like we can do better. We can do a more impressive stuff on mobile. We spent some time in academia on working on like projects that were related to kind of mobile hardware. So it wasn't exactly photo editing, but we knew like back then the constraints of GPUs on the iPhones, etc. So frankly, in the beginning of the competitive advantage was this understanding that at this moment we can build something better than, you know, like uh, our competition. And I think indeed our like first product back in the day was able to basically create interactions that other people couldn't replicate. So it kind of bought us some time, right? But Obviously, with the technology, it becomes commodity pretty fast and things that are state-of-the-art like one year, two years after their commodity. So like with time, we needed to figure out how we are constantly maintaining this competitive advantage. So one of the kind of early decisions that we made is that we're going to invest heavily in research. Again, like we saw in Adobe or, you know, like Microsoft research where I spent some time, we just like realized that, again, we're not a network. 
we're never going to be in a position where we can just rely on what we built already without keep innovating. So the decision was, yeah, like to build a big research team. And I think for a startup, it's like we have a huge research team, right? By now, it's almost like 40 computer science masters and PhDs, kind of mostly from Hebrew U. They're kind of constantly trying to figure out what to do next, right? And it's like, Giga, kind of, I can't see you, but I almost see kind of, you know, gear spinning in your head. Well, but that's like how big of the mode it is, etc. Like, again, that's true. Like we, our age, we really need to constantly sharpen it. And it was understanding from the very beginning, right? That we constantly need to innovate. Which is very unique because I think that, you know, the common thinking that we're also promoting is that you've got to think about competitive advantage that is not just being better in technology because that's not defensible over time. But apparently you guys manage because I know that there's nothing in the app store right now that is even close to what you guys are doing in terms of machine vision. And so you're basically still today, a few years in and with millions of users, your main competitive advantage is being much better in the core tech of your product. Yeah, so listen, like with time, we obviously started to see what other tool makers did over time in order to have a competitive advantage. Like this category of consumer subscription software, that's where we play at the moment as a fairly new one. So all the comparisons that can think about, they're true only to a degree. But we started to look at other companies to see what we're doing. And at some point, we realized that product brand is a thing. It's funny, but, you know, we're coming from a computer science background, not exactly marketing. Not, not exactly, you know, MBAs. And it was something that took us a while to realize. But you know what? Brand is a real thing, right? Like once you're building a brand, you like can really measure the impact of the brand you build on, for example, your marketing costs. So like constantly kind of significantly go down, improving your margins. So it was almost kind of a strike of luck. Like Facetune was really a groundbreaking product in this category in the App Store. And it became a brand just, frankly, mostly to the amount of usage it got, right? Like, I don't think we did an exciting job at, like, creating this brand. But once we saw the impact of having a brand, we started to think how we can do it to more products, right? And finally got to the point where, like, next year, like, a big chunk of our market channel is going to be kind of brand advertisement. I don't know if you kind of remember, we didn't even want to touch before, right? Because, like, like the whole thing was performance marketing, like really ROI-driven, et cetera. But like with time, we started to realize the importance of brand, right? So that's like, I think, a real mode, not without its challenges, obviously, but that's something... And not always easy to build. I mean, you guys were also incredibly lucky in that some very famous creators picked up the product early on and basically gave you crazy free marketing by mentioning to everybody that they're using it because the product was so magical. That's true. And now we're basically trying to replicate some of the things in a more principled way, right? Like a lot of the things that we're working on at the moment are kind of really structured collaboration with opinion leading creative. That's like also a big part of the roadmap for next year. We really see that these activities are working for us. And, you know, like it brings me to influencer marketing, which is kind of one of these dirty topics of marketing. Sometimes I think because I think, again, a lot of people tried that it didn't work. But for us, it's almost part of the core business, right? Like we really need to attract kind of opinion leaders in this field of kind of mass market creativity and to work with them. And, you know, like it's part of what we're doing. Yeah. Another interesting perspective is that when I think about what you're saying, basically you're five founders, right? Yep. And you were all basically experts in machine vision. So one of the founders was a clerk in the Supreme Court of Israel back then, but most of us are. 
And so I wonder whether as a strategy, it's interesting to think that when you choose core technology as your remote, you've got to make sure that the founding team really know what they're doing in this field. Again, like to me, it circles back to if you don't have a competitive advantage, do not compete, right? Like if you want the tech to be your single mode or at least your core mode, you better know your tech. Completely. How do you think about your dependency on the main platforms? I mean, clearly there's some, you know, exogenic thing, like if TikTok gets shut down, then maybe there's going to be less video creation because there's not going to be TikTok, but that's completely out of your control. But how do you think about API changes, about, you know, changing what you can or can't do? Is this something that you guys are very busy with? To tell you the truth, yes, the platforms are still undergoing massive changes in terms of like their own evolution, like kind of really nothing to do with us. And this evolution is like driven sometimes by product needs, sometimes by uh, monetization pressure on the platform, sometimes by regulatory changes. And we need to adopt pretty fast. I guess, you know, like one big like really example that we have at the moment that's I guess not only like cross industry problem is the privacy changes that Apple are implementing right like they're supposed to be as part of the iOS 14 and now we're like a little bit postponed and how it affects the IDFA and the way Facebook does tracking and how performance marketing is done so all these things they definitely affect us and these are one of the challenges of our business we're built a layer on top of the fastly evolving platforms and you know there are costs to that definitely been working well so far so i don't think you can complain i know you've added many more products and i wonder whether in the new product that you've added you've tried to implement additional defensibilities on top of brand and core technology are you trying in every new product to come out to also add potentially network effects or other defensibilities that will make the new products even more defensible great question to tell you the truth yeah like i mean we are really trying to get outside of our comfort zone and constantly try to figure out what else we can do in order to like not only increasing like defensibility obviously create a better user experience by somehow leveraging the fact that we have a diversified portfolio right so i'll give you just a bunch of examples so before kind of a specific new product first of all it's like the question of bonding and unbound right like there's like this famous saying that there are only two business strategies bonding and unbonding so so far we try to really kind of diversify to tackle different verticals of creativity on mobile by different products but now we're getting to the point where we really kind of start to try and bundle things because both like from business perspective and from user perspective the current situation doesn't make sense imagine kind of Lytrix user kind of a creative person that is interested in more than one product at the moment maintaining 11 subscriptions that just like seems too much right like just like really bad experience you can't expect users to do that but the problem is of course that the platforms like aren't evolved to support these things just yet. It's just like not a concept that exists on the App Store. So we kind of try to work around that with what we have. And I think we're kind of having some impressive work there, but we weren't able to kind of tackle it just yet. And it's a big priority at the moment. Like we really want to avoid this like 11 subscription per user. That's, that sounds crazy. So that's like one thing of going out of the comfort zone of uh, things that we did before. Another two examples are going to be on the kind of a level of speed 
specific product. So we are trying to figure out that, you know, might laugh at that because it's again kind of our baby step way of thinking, but we're trying to figure out if we can create some kind of network effects without actually building a social network, but actually leveraging existing networks, right? I'll give you an example. We have like this new product that came out. It's called Filter Tune. It's an amazing photo editor. It like introduces the concept of semantic photo editing where the software understands the semantic of the image and then you kind of work on different parts, etc. But the cool social concept there is that we saw a behavior of users of influencers on social media that are trying to kind of share their own filters, their own creations. They have, for example, an Instagram feed that is customized in a certain way, and they want their followers to adopt this appearance, right? And it's kind of good for both sides here, both for the influencer and the person who you know, feels better or elevated because of falling or whatever. So in this product, we're trying to create this concept there. It's like really easy to share your own filter. So it comes with the QR code. So you can kind of, when you export your filter, uh, or you look on any photo, there's like a, a small QR code. And then if your follower opens the app with this like, QR code, he can kind of copy your filter and then remix your filter, things like that. So that's kind of an attempt to create a network without a network. Yeah, exactly. So it's a layer of network-ish like activity on top of network, right? That's going to capture a certain relationship there. And again, I know that's like it's one of these crazy bets, right? Like obviously we have no idea if it's going to work out. It really depends how the users will like the interaction, how valuable it's going to be for them. But that's, again, that's kind of something out of our comfort zone of toolmakers. Another thing, like another example of, is our product called BitLib that was actually was built with a TikTok audience in mind, right? Like the whole idea there is that you are trying to take hard things out of video editing, especially when you're creating music videos, like for most people working with the professional level software, video editing timeline is kind of really hard. Like you do all these cuts and then stitch things together. So like the video exactly on the beat of the music, it's like really hard. So we developed like this algorithm that analyzes a soundtrack and then the video editing is driven by the soundtrack. Okay. So it's like a really cool concept, obviously kind of uh, targets a uh, TikTok crowd. But on top of that, we actually want people to help follow TikTok trends more easily, right? So like on TikTok, sometimes when you're seeing like these top trending videos, they are actually were created by already like a professional crew, right? That's always kind of a problem with mass market creativity that once it's become big enough, like platform is big enough, it attracts a professional crowd. And then the gap between uh, home creations and professional creation grows, right? And then again, it's like a really democratized game, but again, like a really small number of users. So we kind of want to bridge that and we want to like really use AI in order to help our users to kind of follow this trend. That's another kind of activity that tries to take us out of our comfort zone. And on that, just a question that comes to my mind, are the apps built in a way that the more users use them, they're becoming better? So is there here like a data or a tech network effect where the more images you're getting users to edit, the more you can make it better and automatic for the next users? Well, you know, like I'll start with the first part, like evolution of kind of usage and your level of productivity over time. It's internally, that's one of the kind of things where we're tracking, right? Like, you know, like if you don't mind, that's like really important tangent here. So I want to mention that it's also going to connect to modes and stuff. 
One of the things with platforms when they create their tools that they tend to create like the single click tools. They want to, again, increase engagement. They like don't want you, you know, like to spend too much on the tools, et cetera. Like from our perspective, we actually want to create interactions that require a degree of investment. So you kind of become better with time. And sometimes like even for tools that potentially could be automatic, we prefer to expose the degrees of freedom that gives a user like a certain extra, we just see that people invested more than into tools, into the things that we're creating. So we're actually kind of constantly tracking these things. We constantly want to see that the user that spend more time inside the apps, they're both exporting more assets and they're using more advanced tools. In our opinion, kind of could be an additional mode, right? Like when users are kind of using your more sophisticated tools with a more complex UX, they're getting into habit of using these tools. And that's in our opinion of something. We're definitely kind of trying to do that. Interesting. That's great. I think that you're thinking about it of adding new layers of defensibility on top of it. It's definitely what we always tell founders. Even if you're the beginning, you've got one type of defensibility, you've got to continuously think of how you can enhance it and additional defensibilities to make your product even better and stronger. One other thing I really want to ask you, and I know it's not going to be a simple answer. How many products do you have out today? Well, <laughs> by now, you know, it depends who you're asking. <laughs> Day 11, okay. I think that other than hyper-casual game companies, I don't know any company of that size that has 11 active products. And so managing a product pipeline or product roadmap in this seems like crazily complex to me. How do you think about that? What is your thinking about adding a new product versus digging more into the existing products? When do you think it's enough and you need to move on? How does that work? Okay, Gigi, but like I have a question for you now, right? Like, couldn't you tell me like a five years ago that it's going to be really hard to manage 11 products? <laughs> ah, I think I told you. And luckily you didn't listen to me and you did what you did, which is why where you are today. So that's great. But it is very complex, right? It is something that huge companies with years and years of product building struggle with. And here you are with, you know, 450 people, you know, not little, but not thousands needing to manage 11 products with 11 different roadmaps, with 11 different you know, teams coming up with ideas. That's a pretty crazy task. It is a crazy task. Like we kind of realized it for a while. We kind of constantly tried to shift the kind of structure of the company from being a pretty flat company where like a product manager is basically like the CEO of a small startup inside the company, then like to the division level. And now like after in like Q3 this year, we release like four new products. We just start to see that it's like really extremely hard. Right. We underestimated how hard it's constantly push forward 11 products with, again, like the life shelf of our products is supposed to be, I don't know, like a, a decade or more. Right. We released Facetune eight years ago and it's still our top performing product. So really aiming long term here, I guess, unlike many hyper casual gaming companies. So... For us, you know, like it started with the fact when we released Facetune, it was very successful. But a lot of people told us, well, you know, you're like one trick pony, right? So we had like this one time hit, great for you, but it's not going to move anywhere beyond that. So we kind of constantly wanted to prove that we are kind of a diversified company, that it's not only Facetune. And once they kind of started to realize that the way we build a brand with Facetune, other company might do it on other verticals of creativity. And then it's going to be extremely hard to, you know, like top them. Like a brand is actually a thing. 
And by now, by the way, we do have a competitors that created, you know, some great things. And now, like, we're playing a catch-up game there. It's going to be years, right? So that's, like, where the push for diversification came from. We're, like, in the small, yeah, like, more products. Like, let's tackle more and more verticals. And now we got to the point where just, like, realized that we need to pause. We really already have diversity portfolio. And we need to figure out how to structure ourselves organizationally in order to tackle this challenge. That's like really an understanding that Donna's uh, kind of at some point this year and like really switch gear to different kind of activities and we structure a company in a different way to tackle it, right? So every division is going to be really structured as a company inside the company, you know, like meaning with a strong management team. So division manager is indeed going to be like CEO, but he's going to have his own VP product and VP engineering, creative director, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're like... At the moment in the position where we need to hire a ton of senior people just to kind of structure the company in the appropriate way, right? I don't know, like you have a team that are service providers inside the company and like a research team, tech transfer team, purchase experience teams. And now you need to figure out like the communication patterns because obviously each one of the products internally feels like the most important product, right? Like So how you're like constantly doing this prioritization between the product teams and the service providers. So there are like a ton of challenges. And, you know, like to tell you the truth, I don't think like so far we're doing a great job to tackle that. That's like really ongoing process. We're, you know, trying to bring experienced people outside, working with consultants that really saw multi-product companies that can't advise us there. So it's like really ongoing process. And in games companies, usually when you have many products, one of the indications that you're doing your process as fast and as hard as you need is that you end up killing products every once in a while. Did you guys ever kill a product? No, but we intend to. Obviously, a kind of a hard question, emotionally hard thing, because every product we release, we try to be like really state of the art and it requires for like enormous amount of blood, sweat and tears from product teams working on it. By now, yeah, we start kind of to realize that, okay, you get the product out, there should be a definite kind of grace period for a product to materialize its full roadmap and show how great it can be. But beyond a certain point, if you're not reaching a certain goals, and that's something that we're measuring like ROS after like a month, a year and two years, if you're not reaching these goals, then, you know, like you should go to a maintenance mode. That's really like a game company, and that's probably the way to think about it. Let's go back to the beginning for a second. So when Facetune came out, how did you know that you have a product market fit? And I mean, how did you measure it? How did it feel? Did it immediately strike or was it at the beginning not so and then something changed? How was the beginning? We had a lot of lag, but one thing that goes on for us back then, I think we were like pretty honest with a measuring user response to our product, right? Like, so when we started the company, we have no idea what our first product is going to be, right? We had this idea about the space in general, but the way we started to think about the first product is that we started to build a bunch of small prototypes, like really kind of cool computer graphics, computer vision, like image processing things. And we let users or our friends basically to play with it. And we just saw their response to like these small prototypes. At some point, we implemented this tool that, I don't know, like existed in Photoshop for 25 years. It's called Liquify. 
this tool allows you to change the contours of the image by dragging a mouse or like in our prototype, it was by a moving your finger on the screen. And we just saw a reaction of the person that saw that he can change the, I don't know, like the shape of the nose by dragging a finger on the image. It's like what was off the charts, right? So, so that was like this immediate, and again, like we did a lot of prototypes and we saw this was just a different ballpark of reaction. So that's where we get like this initial hunch. Well, you know what, maybe if we take kind of retouching capabilities out of the Photoshop and make them like really easy to use. Maybe there is something there, right? That was initial hunch. And we started by implementing a bunch of other kind of, you know, like small prototypes, letting people play with it. And like, frankly, reaction was off the charts. It was like way before we even released that as an app, right? It was like in this prototyping stage when we learned how to use iOS, etc. And we constantly, constantly reached out to users for feedback because like early on, we realized that things that are fun for us as researchers coming from academia aren't going to be fun things for our users. Even with this Liquify tool, the crazy thing about it is that we didn't think that it's like super interesting, right? It wasn't like a state-of-the-art thing. It was just, you know, kind of implementation of existing idea on your new platform. We frankly tried kind of way more sophisticated algorithms or other prototypes. But like, I think the thing that worked really well is just being honest with how you measure the reaction of the users. If someone like really likes something, you're going to notice it. So that's really critical because I think that, you know, what we tell founders often and people don't always get it is that if you're not sure you have product market fit, then you probably don't because when you do, you really feel it. And I think that's what happened, right? You put this new feature out and that really changed everything. Yeah, like even before the App Store, the reaction was off the charts. We compared it to reaction to other prototypes that tried maybe to implement better existing activity, things that already existed, like filters, etc. And people were like, okay, fine. It was off the charts. And again, like before you release, you obviously don't know exactly how it's going to look like. But for us, you know, like since the initial release of Facebook, it was crazy. It just like couldn't believe how it constantly was uh, kind of above our expectations. That's great. And do you have now like a framework with 11 apps? Do you have a, an internal framework of how to measure product market fit that you run on each one of these apps? Have you basically turned into a methodology of verifying that the app has product market fit before you start pushing it? That's a great question, right? Like I think in the end of the day, if you think about kind of our activities, you can broadly divide them into exploration activities and exploitation activities. And that's like with the new features and with the new apps. Most of the activities that like once you already have a sizable business, they're like exploitation activities. You really need to take things that are working for you, for competitors and, you know, make them great. There are like exploration activities. There's like completely new things. And we're constantly trying to say, well, roughly 80% of the time is the exploitation of the existing things. 20% of the time it's like exploration of the new concept. So when we're thinking about, again, new apps, new features. Like first of all, you're looking at these things that are working already, like for you, for competitors, and you're trying to figure out how just, you know, to make them better. Like it sounds maybe a bit more boring than, you know, like this crazy exploration, new kind of ways of doing things, activities. I think by now it should be a big part of your business. We already have something to defend. So, you know, like that's life. You just need to figure out how to make certain things better. That is so true. We call it going after places where you've got guaranteed demand and you only need to create a new type of supply of something, a new capability, a new something. But the demand, the need for editing, the need for things is proven already. That makes life much easier. Exactly. So like 80% of the time is that we know what already is working on mobile. We know what users like again. 
in our tools and competitors. That said, you know, like we're still in the market that grows really fast and sometimes competition surprises, like really coming up with a cool new products we didn't think about. We also obviously try to surprise the competition, right? Like if you look at the two products that I mentioned, the new ones, like Filter Tune and Bitlip, they're like really trying to do new things. And we don't know how well it's going to work, but like we have to do these things. And then the process around exploration and exploitation is different. When you're doing exploitation, you better to come up with some numbers, some data points from our products, from existing competition, etc. And you should come with a lot of data. When you're doing exploration, to tell you the truth, it works around kind of product street cred that people have around the company, right? Like if you kind of created a cool things in the past that users are really liked, if you have like a proven intuition around these things, getting kind of, you know, like street cred to try kind of bigger and bigger things and sometimes new products. Again, like obviously these exploratory ideas need to generate a lot of excitement internally, right? In order to like really be pushed as a new product. Once these things are out and uh, yeah, you also start to measure them with the same set of measurements where I guess retention is always the most important parameter because revenue is a begging indicator, but you know, retention usage is in the end of the day what drives our business. So if I'm an early stage founder now, looking for a product market fit and trying to measure it. Do you have any kind of insights on how to think about it? I know it's pretty generic, but being that you've already done it 11 times. It really depends on the stage. If it's a kind of first product and the company is like either before funding or just secure an initial round of funding, I would say like be as honest with yourself as you can. And they always say when you're like writing something, you better get an editor. doesn't matter how good of the writer you are. The same thing with business ideas, with software you need constantly like external validation, even in the prototyping stage, right? Because something that looks cool to you might not look cool to other people. So again, like constantly kind of honesty, constantly getting external feedback, kind of really cherish it and realize that you can lie to yourself, but in the end of the day, the market is going to be a hard judge. Completely. And using data is so critical. I want to talk about the product themselves. And products have a very interesting mix, I think, of utility and fun, right? I mean, the products are really fun because they do kind of very magical things on images that you don't think are possible as a user. On the other hand, you know, they're really geared to bring specific utility. How do you think about balancing them and is the balance different when you target consumer versus the people that have creative aspirations versus SMBs? Or do you keep the same balance between utility and magic fun? I think it's kind of intuitive realization, but balance is obviously different, right? Like once you're targeting like really consumers that look at the app as kind of, you know, fun activity, you're immediately competing on their time with other fun activities, you know, like gaming or special network, et cetera. So you need to create like these magical moments, like these wow moments. And the interesting thing is that sometimes like these wow moments or magical experience, they aren't like the core of the product, meaning that most of the time the users will spend elsewhere, but you still kind of need these magical things kind of to lure them in, to show them like you really care about them, that there is a kind of a special place to be at. And it's obviously like really different for, uh, you know, like small businesses, obviously the best example, right? These kind of guys, they don't care about creativity per se. They're not coming for, you know, like magical moments. They're coming to achieve like really clear goals, right? They want to promote their business. They want to see ROI. 
So you better, you know, show them something that does it really fast, right? So there you kind of care a little bit less about that. You care more about understanding who the user is, from what domain he's customizing his experience according to his domain. So yeah, it's like really different product sensibilities and like frankly, like different people who might be great for one set of products has lesser intuitions for others. Yeah, which is always difficult because you're basically having three types of customers in the same company. Yep. So making things even more complicated. Let's talk for a second about pricing. I think that what many people may not know, because right now the products are all subscription-based, is that you were initially a paper download company and you basically shifted in a very brave move, I think, from a model that everybody knew before, which is a utility is something that you pay for and then you continue using it for life into a subscription model. How did you think about it? How was the change? How did customers receive it? So we got to $10 million in annual revenues. And that's when we did our first round. And Danny Cohen from Viola was our first investor. And okay, we <laughs> did the round and immediately realized that there is no way that we're going to get to $100 million with the same business model. Like the math just didn't work out, right? Like we just, part of the paid model was built on the fact that our performance marketing worked with burst campaigns where we were able to get like really high in the paid ranks. And that created a lot of kind of organic impressions for people just growing the app store. So we started like did the math and realized that even if constantly we have top 10 of the paid apps in the United States are all Lytrix products (laughs) all year around, it's still not going to be a hundred million dollars. So something just really doesn't add up. And we started to obviously look at different models, I don't know, like paper use and freemium models, et cetera. And we kind of like immediately realized that first of all, we didn't have any competitors who were able to crack it like so no one had kind of significant revenues back then and our attempts with freemium like we just didn't see how the model that worked great for games is going to be applicable for creative tools so we just decided that you know like we're gonna bet on some inexisting future and we're do we're gonna try to do our best in order to know, convince the platforms to make it happen. It obviously was like really crazy bad when you look at it on the retrospect, but frankly, we didn't have any choice, right? Like the old business model didn't work. The new one didn't exist yet. You know, we kind of hope that it will materialize at some point and thank God it happened. And was it a painful switch? Were customers upset? I mean, you clearly grandfathered the old customers, but were there any kind of pushback from the community? Yeah, like the crazy thing here is that, and you know what I hear maybe one of the kind of interesting lessons for uh, founders who start their companies is that we completely overestimated the backlash. The way we kind of started to think about that is like we looked at Adobe, who did basically like a real retail package software for, I don't know, like uh, decades. And then around like 2011, 12, decided to switch to subscription. And there was like a backlash of Adobe users. You could clearly see it on social network, etc. And Adobe were actually prepared to earn less, right? Like in the beginning of the transition to subscription. And we kind of thought, well, you know what? It may be like a year or two until people realize that it's like if they want us to constantly keep working and creating a great software, 
we need to get something out of it. And the process was kind of way faster, like unbelievably faster. Like I think after a couple of months, it just was a norm and everything forgot that it didn't exist before. And another thing is that we were like so anxious that the users will not see value in the subscription that we like really built an overkill of features in our first app. Like we also like created like all kind of weird things where you could subscribe to the tools, but you also could within a purchases to buy each one of the separate and we wanted you to be able to try the tools, like demo the tools before. Like really, we built a ton of stuff, but frankly, it wasn't necessary because in the end of the day, it looks like if you're creating, you know, something that gives value to the users, they're just like willing to pay. Yeah. And you guys must have a wealth of pricing data in your minds. How do you think about pricing? How do you know if a founder is thinking now about how to set the product pricing could you give a few guidelines as to what your way of thinking with a new product, how to price it? So I think, again, like our initial set of assumptions was completely wrong, luckily for us. So like the thinking started, I mean, like this transition to subscription is that we constantly should be an order of magnitude cheaper than the cheapest pricing by Adobe, okay? So I don't know, we thought that we're gonna, like, I don't know, they're like charging, back then we're charging for Photoshop and Lightroom, maybe like 10 bucks a month. We thought that's gonna be a pricing for a year for us, okay? Something like that. And even that kind of seemed high for us. And kind of luckily for us, we weren't like super dogmatic. And by the way, our CMO constantly told us that we're mistaken. He told us, listen, like you're using incorrect anchor when you're thinking about our users, like, right? Like they're not familiar with it. Adobe products. They don't care about them. They use like their phones and some of the FaceTune users and they're thinking about uh, applying like retouching. They think more about like makeup and how much it costs in the real world and not about Adobe products. But luckily for us, he was right. Like, so we were mistaking about like the anchor for pricing that our users are using. And we're like really mistaken, but we're willingness to pay. The cool thing is that we always try to approach pricing from a kind of empirical standpoint, just, you know, like offer a different pricing to different audiences of users and kind of track the parameters over time. And it became like really clear for us that the price was too low by a factor of almost four. It's a big mistake. And, you know, at the moment, we're still thinking a lot about pricing right now, but we kind of bundle things. Like some of the product managers are saying, well, you know what, like, let's not care about pricing at all. Let's just have like a single product price for all the products and just make sure that the user are starting to use all the products inside the ecosystem because that's like what's important for us in the next year or two, right? Like not monetization just yet. Okay, other camp obviously want, you know, like to immediately start with the pretty high price point for the bundle because it's a unique value proposition because you're like without a friction can move across the apps on the same project. So again, there are like a lot of kind of different thoughts. And I think from my perspective, if you can validate your assumptions with experiments, that's the way to go it's obviously not always possible in every domain but again if it's like one of the cool things with working with consumers that you know you've got a ton of users so you can run a lot of tests and figure these things empirically i hear testing i hear not being afraid to charge what you really should charge and more like really like if you're creating something great that gives value for the users like that's almost like a mentality problem that we had right like whoa like who's gonna pay etc you know if you create people will pay so I want to touch for a second on SMBs because this has been quite a shift. You guys started with social power users. Then you moved to creative people that wanted better tools for creation. And now you're betting a lot on SMBs. And I kind of wonder what you're seeing in the landscape of SMB marketing that makes it 
so interesting for you to bet on? So I think historically SMBs was kind of underserved market. The price points you can charge from SMBs, and again, like in our case, we're talking about like really kind of nano SMBs, micro SMBs, right? Like some restaurant owners, uh, freelancers, freelancer, exactly. Like they are obviously willing to pay more than the consumers, but less than you know, like businesses, enterprises, significantly less. So a can't pay enough for you to justify Salesforce for your software, right? On the other hand, it's kind of hard to reach these users using kind of regular consumer marketing, right? So I think it created like this situation there. It's pretty big market. Like from our talks with Facebook, they claim that, I don't know, there are more than 100 million pages on top of their platforms that can be attributed to small businesses. So it's a big market, but still underserved, right? Like if you think about restaurant owners or moms and pops shop, most of them are using smartphones. That's like part of the reality of their life. Many of them aren't reaching to marketing agency just yet. And sometimes the rates of these agencies are way kind of beyond the reach of the businesses. So we're trying to figure out like how we can create self-serving tools that can not only address the problem of content creation, but also the problem of, you know, like social media planning and then like ROI positive uh, promotion of your content on top of social networks, right? Again, like it's not an easy problem, right? Because I think actually like content creation is the easy part here. Like, okay, we know how to do it. So we created a tool that allows you to create uh, video ads and posts, etc. But now how you're taking our expertise and performance marketing and kind of package in a way that's going to appeal to small businesses, like there is a real challenge there. And so you're basically in the SMB product, you're going to go more to the execution, the actual use of the content that's being created rather than just allow the creation of the content and let them post it on other places the way you let consumers or creators do. Exactly. Like way to think about it is that in terms of content creation for SMBs, there are already like really strong established players. And if we want to be like a really significant player in this market, we want to be the, this one-stop shop for all SMBs needs, right? So it's not about content creation anymore. It's like it's closing the cycle between, okay, now I'm a restaurant owner. I realize that I need to promote myself on top of Facebook. How do I do, right? Like how do I create a brand? How do I create a social media plan? What kind of content I need to create? What kind of copyright I need to create? How I need to promote it after? So there's like a, a really bunch of different problems. Maybe they're like really cool problems, right? Even like this creating copyright things, even on top of templates is like really challenging research level things. So it's kind of pretty cool. But yeah, it's like a big problem we try to tackle a big product with a lot of different verticals inside of the product, but it's cool. You know, there are many consumer product founders that come with SMB-based ideas, so selling to SMBs, and they're saying selling to SMBs is the same like selling to consumers. What would you tell these people and what would you say is the main mental shift you need to do when you move from selling to consumers to selling to SMBs? I think uh, we were also in the camp of this founders, right? Like, uh, <laughs> Definitely. On the Facebook, I can reach uh, everyone, be it a small business or consumer. But what we realized that there are nuances and frankly, we're kind of still learning them. It starts even if you're using like Facebook to reach SMBs, and that's definitely a plausible way to do that. You need to figure out like a different set of creatives, right? Like if you have a marketing people who are great at consumer, not necessarily immediately translate to kind of small businesses. It's obviously like a really different set of influencers. You know how to work with consumer influencers well. Like who are the business influencers? 
Yeah, exactly. Like we're talking about like small businesses. So who is exactly is going to be like the influencer for restaurant owners? And again, like the influencers can be like really different across geos, right? Like because the market is obviously kind of way more fragmented. So like, frankly, we're still in the process of learning this market. You know, I'd be happy if you host me in a year. Maybe we'll have something more smart. So last question, a bit more uh, on the funny side. There is a urban legend that being that you guys were five founders, none of you very much of an expert in this field. You're not a CEO. People are not necessarily experts in marketing or in being a CFO. You basically kind of had an interesting discussion on which founder is going to take which role. Is this true? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is true. And how did that work? How did you end up being the CEO? Yeah, no, so like, you know, by now it's like a really urban legend that light with different flavors of this story. Some people claim that the fact that I, you know, trained a lot in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has something to do with it. Other claim <laughs> that the fact I was the only one to complete a PhD has something to do with it. But when uh, people ask me that, they kind of deflect the questions back to my co-founders. So. What I think is amazing is that, you know, you were just five great founders and with no experience, each one of you took a role and you ended up doing them really well by learning and moving fast and listening to people. You were one of the most listening teams that I've seen and learning very fast. So that's also great. Zeva, I want to really, really thank you for your time. You've been incredibly generous with us and I think there's tons of very interesting and important inputs for founders. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, you put it out. We're going to host you in a year time to hear more about the evolution of the product and the company. That's great, Gigi. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Ev. You've been listening to the NFX Podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com.